I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. And as you're turning, uh, indulge me just one last wistful look back at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We spent uh, almost a year of Sundays in the first three chapters of Genesis. And uh, that is because Genesis 1 to 3 is far from being merely an introduction to Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is an introduction to the whole Bible. We've been considering who God is, how the world came to be, what man has been made to be, what is wrong with the world, and what God is going to do about it. I think I'm ready to leave Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, It has been a rich study. Some of my commentaries uh, actually only take up the first three chapters of Genesis. Uh, They're considered that significant. They're worth a whole book. A whole commentary on. But we do press on in chapter 4 this morning. And we have just seen Adam and Eve uh, sent out from the Garden of Eden into the wide, wide world. That's the dreadful consequence of their sin. But we've also seen there is also something in that that's for their own good. Because redemption in God's plan is going to come by means of death unto life through the seed of the woman. And only after that will the tree of life be a blessing and not a curse. So I'll begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 4 and we'll read through verse 8. This is the word of God. Now Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why? Has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask you not to leave us to ourselves just with the benefit of our own gifts and graces already provided by you. 
Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and bless and make the word preached to bear rich fruit. Be our rabbi, Lord Jesus. That's what your ordained means today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you look uh, now to the whole of the rest of the book of Genesis, from the vantage point of the beginning of chapter 4, and indeed, as we look at the whole of the rest of the Bible, from the vantage point of the beginning of chapter 4, indeed, as we look at the whole of the rest of redemptive history, from the vantage point of the beginning of chapter 4. It's quite a moment. And the question is, what will happen to Adam and Eve as they go out into a now fallen world? What's to become of them? What's in store for them? Brothers and sisters, as I look particularly at the book of Genesis as it unfolds from this point on, I see the author wanting to answer precisely that question. And he's going to do it along two main lines. He's going to want, for the rest of Genesis in particular, to show us how Adam and Eve fill the earth with their offspring. Genesis is going to be all about the seed of the woman. Genesis is going to be about all kinds of descendants of Adam and Eve. That's what we have ahead of us as we continue through the book of Genesis the second theme we'll see is that Adam and Eve, by filling the earth with their offspring, with their seed, they're also going to be filling the earth with sin, with evil. It will abound more and more as we go through the book of Genesis. It's actually not going to be entirely clear initially how it is that redemption will come about by means of the seed of the woman when the seed of the woman is only making more and more evil in the earth. That will have to resolve itself in due time. As we begin uh, considering those two themes, sin and seed, in the course of the book of Genesis, starting with chapter 4, uh, we begin with the family life of the first parents, Adam and Eve. And uh, you saw, as I read perhaps, uh, the beginning of chapter 4 is structured around a series of pairings. Uh, so there's two baby boys that come into the family. Those two baby boys become two grown men who have callings that they're settled into. And those two grown men in their callings come to God with two respective offerings, and those two respective offerings are received by God in two ways. So you see, there's pairings that we'll be following in the course of the next few minutes. As I consider those, I think we can organize them under three headings. First, we have the scene set of the second generation of man. That's the first thing. The scene is set of the second generation of man. Then we have this sudden bombshell of God's very differing response to these two sons of man. And that's all driving us to a very 
grim reality uh, that we'll come to at the end. There's actually two kinds of seed of the woman. So let's begin with this scene that's set of a second generation. We'll begin with the pleasant things in the passage, and that is, of course, to begin with, two bouncing baby boys. Now, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. You uh, do not need to be told that Adam and Eve are acting on the calling that they've been given to be fruitful and multiply. And as ordinary as these things that are described are, in our experience, we ought to recognize how weighty they would have been for the first time to have these experiences of procreation. By the way, there's a little theology of sex in the expression that the Bible uses to first reference Adam's intimacy with his wife. Adam knew his wife. That's a euphemism, you might say, but it's not because the Bible is delicate and doesn't want to speak more literally. It's actually pointing to the role that sex has in marriage as God had ordained it, and it's actually something beyond making babies. It's a means of communion knowing and being known that will serve in the unfolding of scripture that expression for what happens between a man and a woman will serve to explain why ultimately it's pointing to a kind of knowing and being known of unspeakable intimacy between the triune god and sinners redeemed by christ We could linger on that. I won't. Uh, I do invite you to think about the wonder and the terror of that first pregnancy and birth. It's a wonder for any woman to first feel stirring inside of her another creature, another living creature. Imagine, ladies, if you were the first on the planet to have that experience. And it's of great pain and fearfulness to go through labor, but imagine if you were the first to go through the pangs of childbirth. Think of all the emotions that parents, first-time parents especially, have, and I think you can recognize Adam and Eve uh, would have been awash in those as well. I uh, can't be persuaded otherwise. Adam surely wept like a baby, like the baby he was holding. When that first man-child came into the world. Uh, You see Eve giving expression to her faith, her confidence in the Lord. We've touched on it before. We've looked ahead to this. But she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So the first baby name in human history, is the name gotten. That's Cain in the Hebrew. And I gather that since Adam has been the one naming throughout the account thus far, Adam hears his wife's testimony, and he says, I'm going to name my son Cain, the one gotten 
quite a testimony of faith, and I have reflected a little bit on how what Eve testifies to has this combination of her own agency in the birth of this child and God's utter provision. And it has made me think that this whole experience of caring, conceiving a child and caring a child and delivering a child is quite a metaphor for all spiritual undertakings. So the mothers in this room would count that whole experience as a lot of work. Indeed, it's exhausting. Uh, it is hard labor, ultimately at the end especially. All of your agency involved. That's why uh, Eve says, I've gotten a man. She's accomplished something. That's what the word means. She says, with the help of the Lord. And there again, everything about this process, whether a woman conceives, whether that child lives, what that child will be, when that child will come. Oh, there's such helplessness, isn't there? Such utter inability, non-agency, if you will. The nature of all of our accomplishments in the spiritual realm. I think Eve's words would apply to all of us who are sinners, who are seeking to get things for God in his strength. And then we're told it happens all again a second time. Again, she bore his brother, Abel. I suspect they were hoping for a daughter. I'm just, that's my hunch. But that would come, chapter 5 will tell us. They also come to have daughters as well. Uh, and you recognize that our narrator is, is now capturing a, a, a good bit of time in just a few words. Cain and Abel, born. Then as we continue in this pairing, the two men are suddenly, uh, two, the two babies are suddenly men and they're in business. And you see that. As we're told, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And so now we fast forwarded however many years that that would be from birth to business. And of course, uh, this, we don't need to be told, is the other half of the creation mandate, not only to be fruitful, but to rule the earth, to subdue the earth. Cain's a crop farmer. Abel is a sheep herder. And if you think about those who would have first received Genesis, uh, how those two vocations, if you will, would be very familiar and be recognized as the two main vocations of that time. The children of Israel were sheep herders when they went into Egypt. They were shepherds as they traveled to the promised land. And they're given the book of Genesis in that Time, they're looking forward to being landed people with farms and crops. I did stumble across a question I've never thought about before, and that is what did Abel do with all of these sheep? Maybe you have an opinion on that. I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, to those who would have been first receiving this account, 
Uh, there was a diversity of purposes for sheep, but the main one was for food. God wouldn't, until Genesis 9, officially declare living creatures to be food for man. I just remind you of a couple things that might point us to an answer. God had already introduced death, and specifically the death of an animal for the benefit of his people back in chapter 3. We're about to read of the death of an animal uh, in an offering that Abel brings. It may well be that what God officially sanctions in Genesis 9 has already had his blessing uh, in Genesis 4, so that death among the animals after the fall has become a source of life for Adam's family. You can let me know afterwards if I've missed anything in supposing those things. But that set of pairings leads us to a final important pairing in the establishment of this second generation of man, and that's the two offerings that are brought by Cain and Abel. In verse 3, we read, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The word offering here is simply the word gift. Uh, it could be rendered tribute. And at this point in the story, uh, I think a lot of those who come to Genesis 4 seeking to understand, particularly the nature of those offerings, in light of what's about to happen, we haven't quite come to it yet, they tend to look back at the offerings themselves and uh, look for something that's defective in Cain's offering. They know that he is going to be rejected, and so they uh, very often will try to see something amiss in what he offers uh, the theories have been Abel's offering is a nicer offering. It's a more expensive one than Cain's, or a more common one. Abel's offering included blood. Cain's did not. There's a problem, though, in seeking to read later concepts of atoning sacrifice back into this moment in redemptive history. These do not appear in either case to be atoning sacrifices such that Moses would one day prescribe. These are offerings. They're what Moses would prescribe in addition to atoning sacrifices as free will offerings, the first fruits of what you've been given by God being given back to him as an expression of gratitude. And if that is correct, then the first fruits of the field would be just as legitimate as the first fruits of the flock. Both men are doing what is itself good and right to do, offering God as an expression of thanks, a portion of what he himself had given to them. So what we're seeing is the first instance of formal worship. It's being carried out by this second generation of mankind. How did they know that this was something appropriate to do? How did they know that this was something God would be pleased with? Well, we're left to conclude that God had revealed far more than Moses has captured, and we've seen that already in this series. And most probably, he would have given this to Adam, who would then have taught his son about the worship of God. Before I move on from what really is an idyllic scene so far, the 
setting of the second generation of man. Uh, don't overlook this. Brothers and sisters, the sons of Adam and Eve have taken their place beside their father and mother in fulfilling their purpose as image bearers of God. Adam and Eve, by all outward measures at least thus far, they've achieved the goal of parenting. Consider that. They have two sons. They've turned out to be men diligent in two callings. And they're both represented as worshipers of God, those who come to God with their offerings. What else would a parent want? A reminder to my fellow parents, this is our ultimate ambition in all of our parenting, to be eventually joined by our children in the work of subduing the earth on behalf of Christ and worshiping God. We want more than just well-adjusted kids who are interesting people and will keep us company in our old age. We want more than sons and daughters who are secure in the middle or maybe upper middle class and take care of us in our old age. Brothers and sisters, our goal for our children is that they be worshipers of a true God they be fruitful workers in his kingdom. That's the scene we have in the first three and a half verses of Genesis 4. And then comes a bombshell that destroys all the sense of the ideal in this second generation. We have to turn to that now. And that's found as verse 4 continues. Speaking of those offerings. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now again, I'm asking you to consider how this would land with you if you were not so intimately familiar with this story. Nothing that has been said thus far has prepared us for this. These two sons, like mirror images of each other, doing each thing that's recorded of them together. And now they're suddenly and dramatically distinguished from each other by God himself in terms of his relationship with them. One is accepted by God. The other is rejected. By God. In your text, you have the same translation I do. You have, the Lord has no regard for Abel and his offering. Sorry, the Lord has regard for Abel and his offering, has no regard for Cain and his offering. That word is a simple word. It means approval or disapproval. Some of you have it translated, looked with favor on one, but did not look with favor on the other. The, the reality is God is pleased with one of them who comes to him with an offering, and he is not pleased with the other that comes with an offering. A lot of our fathers have been curious, how did God make known his pleasure and displeasure? We're not told. The Jews, a very ancient tradition, understanding, in other words, of the backstory, 
Abel offered up his offering. Fire from heaven came down and destroyed or consumed. Cain offered his offering. Nothing happened. Well, it's a tradition we don't know. Uh, In light of how much talking God's about to do with Cain, my suspicion is God told him he was not pleased. His offering was not accepted. In any case, the million-dollar question, what makes the difference? If, as I've argued, and most commentators do, that both offerings were formally correct. There was something appropriate about each of the offerings that come to the Lord. What was it that was different? Well, there are in the text clues, and we'll follow those clues, and then we'll have our deductions confirmed by some helpful passages in the New Testament. The text already gives us clues. There's two things wrong. Keeps God from accepting Cain's offering. It's Cain's heart and it's Cain's life. So when I say there's something wrong with Cain's heart, I see a clue to that, a pretty big clue, in what happens the moment Cain realizes God has rejected his offering. We read, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The word for anger is the word for combustion. You could translate it, it burned him. That's a reference to his immediate response to God. And then his face fell. That's the sense of someone who's fuming and settling into deep resentment. That's the longer term response to Cain's being rejected. Now, you should not miss the fact that rejection by God could have aroused different emotions in Cain. For example, deep distress. A holy anxiety. A zeal to be introspective. Ultimately a plea. Sorrow for sin. For pardon. And for acceptance, none of that, we read of nothing of that. Instead, Cain is furious, and eventually, as you know, his fury eventually settles into resentment against the one whose offering was accepted. Folks, this firstborn son of Adam, named for the faith of his mother, has got a bad heart. We'll only see that unfold more as we continue. But there's also something in the text that shows us that points to something even bigger. His life, we we gather this from verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
Now, if you're still thinking there was something wrong with his offering, then you see God uh, pointing out that he did something wrong. There was a, a, it was a detail here that he needed to fix. But brothers and sisters, there's something far bigger than just a detail about his offering. The doing well is a reference to Cain's life, his living. Uh, Cain is being rebuked for his sinful response, to be sure. God is saying, anger. Anger? Cain in you? In you? Anger towards me? It's the wrong response, but he's also inviting Cain to do well in order to be accepted by God. So listen carefully. If Cain's doing well, or sorry, if Cain's doing badly was just offering the wrong kind of offense, you, uh, offering, you'd expect God to point that out. But doing well actually has the broadest possible reference. It's to the kind of life Cain is living. God is comparing the offering that's all formally quite correct with the larger context of Cain's living and doing, and he's seeing a discrepancy. Cain, you're bringing me an offering, but you're not doing well. You're not a righteous man. That should sound familiar to you. Both those themes, from your familiarity with the scriptures as a whole, they're major themes. Heart and life of worshipers. You know this passage well. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Isaiah is rebuking the people of God for worship, formally correct, but with a heart that is bad. You know these words. To obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel's pointing out the problem of worshipers who have bad lives. You might say Cain is the first Pharisee. He's all about worship. And he's seeking to secure God's approval of him the easy way. A little ritual offering. God sees his heart. He sees his life. He knows both are bad and a contradiction of his worship. Calvin puts it, In the person of Cain is portrayed the likeness of a wicked man who yet desires to be esteemed righteous. And even arrogates to himself the first place among the saints. I've been saying to you, I think all these things can be deduced just from the text, but we have more help in the scriptures. There's two significant places in the New Testament that point out the difference, the reason for the difference between Cain and Abel's, God's response to Cain and Abel's offering. One of them is in Hebrews 11. I'll just quote it. It's very familiar to you. It points to the difference between Cain and Abel being a matter of faith. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. In other words, what was so right about Abel's offering, it was his heart of faith. Abel was a believer, Hebrews chapter 11 
The second place is 1 John 3. It points to the difference being in terms of their whole lives. John says in 1 John 3.12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. John sees Cain to be, in a broad sense, an evil doer, an able, a righteous man. So friends, here's, here's the right lesson from this text. It's actually not, my fellow Presbyterians, it's not a text to proof for making the doctrine of the regulative principle of worship. Uh, it's not the best proof text. Uh, one brought true worship, the other brought strange fire worship. No, that's, that's not what's being taught. It's not even that the emphasis of the text is the difference that God makes by his sovereign election, his choice. That too is a teaching of the scripture. That will become clear in a, in a set of twin brothers later in Genesis. But here the whole emphasis is on the lives and the hearts of these two men. Here's the lesson. It's not the last time it will appear in the scriptures. We're being taught the necessity of heart and life devotion to God for our worship to be acceptable to him. For us to be pleasing to God. You know why? Because God knows. He knows. He knows as people come with their gifts for him state of their hearts, the reality of their lives. He knows. The church father Origen says, in the case of Cain, his wickedness didn't begin when he killed his brother. For even before that, God, who knows the heart, had no regard for Cain and his sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, as we consider this bombshell moment where two seemingly fine, upstanding, we'd call them sons of the covenant, are bringing their offerings and one is rejected and the other is accepted, I, I'm not going to call you to a kind of introspection as a congregation. We warranted you were a bunch of canes. I know that. I know that much. Uh, folks, the fact that you came this morning and had sins to confess doesn't make you a Cain. In fact, your earnestness to seek forgiveness as part of entering into the presence of God shows you to be the righteous man that Abel was because whatever righteousness he had, it was not a sinless righteousness. Confessing sin is part of the righteousness of being and able. Thank God. It's not a congregation of canes. That's why I said at the outset of worship this morning, how do we know that what we're about to give to God will be received by him? It's because we personally have been received by him through Christ. But there is 
brothers and sisters, a very wholesome reminder for us. Not to think that what we do in this room will somehow compensate to God for what we do or do not do the rest of the week. So a lack of heart for God, a lack of righteousness and hunger and thirst for it can somehow be covered over by some faithful church going. That's the nature of many religions, and that's the thinking of not a few Christians. Here's what our text reminds us of this morning. If God is not pleased with you when you walked through the door, he's not pleased with you when you start singing. Conversely, if you're his child, you're an able, you trust in Christ for salvation, you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you've pleased him all week. And when you walk into this room, he's already pleased with you and ready to be pleased with your, your less than perfect singing, your distracted praying, and all the rest that makes your gift not perfect, but pleasing, because you're pleasing in his sight. Genesis 4 is not unpacking all the ways that redemption makes sinners pleasing. How does Abel come to have this heart of faith? How does he come to have then a life of righteousness? Genesis 4 is not unpacking all that. We've got the rest of the Bible that will do that. It's just establishing a link between acceptable worship as that which is offered by accepted people. No amount of ritual can compensate for a lack of relationship with God. That's the lesson. This bombshell moment. It leads us to a third thing which I have to tell you is very grim. I'm not quite going to end on a grim note, but I knew need to make this the third point this morning. The grim reality that there will now be two kinds of seed among the generations of There's also a long-standing tradition, it's unverifiable from the scripture, that when Eve made that exultant statement, now I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, long-standing interpretive tradition that sees Eve as thinking this is the one, this is the child who's going to crush the serpent's head as we would say in later Revelation, this is the Messiah. We don't know that Eve had pinned her hopes that way, but if she had, oh, what even more unspeakable heartache was in store for her. She came to discern who Cain really was. Cain wasn't so much 
her seed. He was the serpent's seed. Remember we asked the question, how can a snake, never mind that, how could a demonic being in the serpent form, how could that being have offspring because his offspring sort of, uh, bruised the heel of her offspring? How is, how is that possible? The answer is dreadful. And it's put on display already. Genesis 4. Satan will have a kind of procreative capability. He'll be able to raise up children in his image through Eve. Remember how John put it in the passage I quoted a moment ago? You should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. And murdered his brother. You could have inferred that. John is making it explicit. Serpent has seed too. And his seed will be found among the seed of the woman. That's what I'm calling a grim reality. We could fervently wish it were not so. Genesis presents to us Cain the one gotten by his mother with the help of the Lord, is both her child and the child of the devil. Cain and Abel are presented to us as kind of representative heads of a divided human race. This division will run through families. It will run through worshiping communities. It will mark out whole societies in human history. It's a division we've come to be very accustomed to. It's part of everyday life for us, but it's beginning just here. With the very second generation of mankind. Mercifully, the first generation appears not to have been divided, Adam and Eve. Their sons are the grim reality. One that explains a lot. Uh, this reality explains what is what you've already referenced. The greatest of all trials of parenting. For all that was apparently faithfully done by Adam and Eve, one of their sons is a believer, the other becomes a murderer. It's a grim reality that lies behind the sufferings of the church through the ages, or much of those sufferings. Abel, as we'll return to, becomes the first martyr, and he dies at the hands of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the, of the woman is being bruised. This grim reality lies behind the death of Messiah will one day become clear in redemptive history. Who were the murderers of the seed of the woman? It wasn't the devil directly. It was his offspring, the one that Jesus spoke of as your father, the devil. So brothers and sisters, contrary to what Pope Francis might like to surmise, 
Genesis 4 is making clear that the redemption of Adam and his descendants will not be universal. There'll be some of the seed of the woman who are accepted by God, pleasing in his sight, and others who are rejected in time and unto eternity. I I just saw it. This quote believes that hell will be empty. Brothers and sisters, this is the beginning of something that will run through all the rest of Scripture. And it's something Genesis 4 unflinchingly presents to us. And I don't want to end on that grim reality. Is there a brighter note that we could end on? Even here in this text? I think there actually is. There is some hope and encouragement about the nature of our God in the midst of this reality of two seeds of the woman. And it's found in this. Who is the one who receives all the attention? of God in Genesis 4. Have you noticed? We don't know anything about Abel except that he was a righteous man. He was accepted by God. Genesis 4 is about Cain. He's the leading figure of the story. And all God's attention is focused on Cain. Why? Cain is the one God's in pursuit of. Cain is the one God's engaging with. Cain is the one that God makes his entreaties to. I see some hope in that. And actually, I see a great deal of what's to come in redemptive history prefigured by that, which is simply this, but profoundly this, God is not content to leave sinners in the service of the enemy. Redemption always entails God graciously reclaiming men who are taken captive by the devil. That's why we are hopeful about our wayward children. That's why we expect even the chief persecutors of the church to become leaders of the church by the grace of God. That's why we expect whole pagan societies wholly ensnared to the demonic delusions of paganism to become Christians. Because God is already striking a pose, if you will, his attention be devoted to those sinners that are for now the seed of the serpent. 
so we're getting a sense of what redemption actually entails. It's God's rescue of those who would otherwise be miserable members of the family of Satan. Seems appropriate, Lord. For us to recognize no one is naturally, merely by nature, seed of the woman. All of grace, all of your redeeming power, that's what we count ourselves to be, the products of your Great mercy to plunder our enemy, to take back from him what is yours. We pray that you'd continue this glorious work before our very eyes, that you would make more of the souls of our day to become the Pauls of the church. We pray that you will work even more grandly than this, Make the darkest of nations and societies to become the brightest with gospel light. Because you have taken the seed of the serpent and redeemed them. Made them the seed of the woman. Father, we pray that you would give to us comfort and confidence. You're the God talks to Cain, invites him and pleads with him. Father, we pray that you'll do this in our midst, even with those who might be present today who have need of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.